Hey, it's me. Your website. This is kind of awkward, but... Are you embarrassed of me? I mean, you don't show me off anymore or tell anybody about me. Worst of all, I know I have so much to offer you in helping you to find the best talent, to seducing your ideal customers, and articulating what your brand stands for. Huck Finch can help us. They specialize in crafting websites that solve business problems and are easy on the eyes. On top of that, they knock out websites in under 60 days and their pricing is transparent, so there's no sticker shock. Give me the makeover I deserve. Learn more at HuckFinch.com because an ordinary website just isn't enough. Welcome to Life on Brand, where builders and breakers share how they live life on their own terms. As always, the show is brought to you by the Hug Finch boys, Matt and Hyde. Check us out at hugfinch.com. Again, that website is hugfinch.com. And also, subscribe to the show because you know you want to. All right, let's jump right in. We're here with the Jeffs of Optimize, a student-led organization at U of M, Go Blue, that supports and funds student projects aimed at making a positive impact. Some of these projects range from redistributing wasted medical supplies, providing music education to underserved youth, to connecting individuals living with the same chronic illness for support. Just reading off that quick list of the, of the lots and lots of projects that's going on here makes me ashamed that I did very, very little in college. Uh, <laughs> I just played video games. <laughs> I wasn't part of anything yeah. until we did this. So. That was my social impact on myself, which is socializing with other friends. <laughs> Out of NCAA football and WWF, like, on like, yeah, like Nintendo 64, <laughs> really uh, dating myself. <laughs> uh, so we wanted to bring both the Je- the Jeff on the show to talk about the story behind Optimize, the future of education, and what they've observed as necessary skills for entrepreneurs. So JP and Jeff, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so let's start with what Optimize is. I kind of gave a quick overview, but in your own words, what is Optimize and what makes it unique? So Optimize is a, a program and organization at the University of Michigan that is an incubator for students to work on their own self-directed projects that aim to make the world more just and more sustainable. And so what we do is we help students who come in in the start of the year and say, uh, you know, maybe I have a project or an idea for a project or even just a problem that I think is important and I want to work on. And I don't know quite how to do it. Or the place that says to people, you know, if you see something, you think someone needs to do something about that ask yourself, why not me? And come work with us, we'll help you get started. And so what we do is we run a five-month incubator program where students can develop their ideas. Uh, We have big skill-building workshops where hundreds of people get together all at the same time to learn things like visioning, prototyping, communication, how to get feedback on your stuff, how to actually get out into the world and start building those relationships that you need to get something going. And then we also have smaller kind of mentorship events where we get people in the same room with uh, mentors like you two who have experience out in different fields and want to help students turn ideas into something that's tangible and is actually making an impact. And then at the end of the five months, the teams that are still around uh, have an opportunity to pitch to 
try to get funding for the summer to join a summer program where they get to work full time on their project and they can get up to $20,000 to do that so that they don't have to take another job or internship. We started this all as students ourselves when we were at Michigan. We can talk a little more about that later, but it's now developed into something where it's student-led. There's a student organization, about 50 organizers who organize this program, about 800 students participating this year. And then we also were able to convince the university that they should hire us to create like a department for it. So it's now a department as well at University of Michigan uh, in collaboration with students. And so we have this sort of unique student university partnership that we really haven't seen anywhere else in the country. So if someone's listening to this and you know other examples, we'd love to meet you. So, but yeah, that's what we're doing. Yeah, it's very cool. I think what, thinking again, I mentioned my (laughs) non-impactful college years. I think what really resonated with me and Matt was the fact that that added, what you're doing is you're adding context and like like taking conceptual ideas and allowing people to like do something with it with their hands. And so for me, that helps me to learn better as well. So this is an opportunity for people to apply an actual skill versus just sitting in a lecture hall and just trying to make sense of it on your own. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like I think I actually told somebody last night, I can't remember which group it was, but my best like value for what you guys are doing, I was was just sitting there and I literally told them, I was like, I didn't get to try anything like this until I was like 28. Yeah. (laughs) You know? Yeah. And I'm only 28 and a half now for everyone (laughs) to pay attention, but um, no, but it really was like, I I thought about it as I was talking to them about the opportunity. I was like, yeah, I didn't try this till so much later. Yeah. Like like 10, eight, nine years later before I like figured out my own way to give it a shot. So And there's, then there's so much, it's so much harder to do at that point because you just have so many more responsibilities and it's just a more difficult context, right? Like when you're in college, like, well, students are way too burdened with too many busy work kind of things. That's a different subject, but, but generally there's a lot more openness and and flexibility with your time where if you want to kind of really invest in a project and try to get something started, there's no better time. Because you don't have your nine to five job. Usually you don't have all those responsibilities. So that's what we're trying to do is, you know, one of our taglines is stop waiting, you know, stop waiting for someone else to change the world. And I think so often students get treated like they're children until you're like 25. And it's like, come on, like (laughs) students, you know, if, if you just look around the world right now, like there's like a 15 year old Swedish girl who's like mobilizing a climate movement, like, that no, that Al Gore couldn't do, you know, it's like, why can't people who are in high school and in college work seriously on the most pressing challenges? There's no reason. And I think that hopefully if you get that under your belt in college, one of our big goals is not just that the projects themselves will be successful because some of them will, but a lot of them won't Mm -hmm. first attempt, you know? Um, But the goal, the thing is that once you have that under your belt, then you go out and you're, you know, 24, 25, 26, Whatever it is, you know, the rest of your life, you you know that you can do this kind of thing. Because yeah. for every one of you who, when you're at 28, you decide to try it, there's probably like 20 other people who just never try. Right. Because it's like, well, now I'm in my career. I really should wait until I have five years experience. And then it's like, well, I really should wait till I have a senior management role. Then I can make change. And it's like, well, now I got kids and a mortgage. And yeah. like, you know, so a lot less people telling you you're crazy earlier on your like yeah, you yeah. Can't give that up for this, right? Yeah, yeah. That's the other side of it. Like these people, they may have their own idea of why they shouldn't do it. But as you're 28 and a half or older, you you run into a lot more people who are probably discouraging you from 
doing it because like you're either past your prime or you have these other responsibilities. Like it's a lot riskier and they just keep floating the risk in your face. And we run into that with a lot of like entrepreneurs who have started their business at a later age or have a family, female who are mothers that just kind of, they just told all the time, mm-hmm. you can't do this thing because you're this thing as well. And your body's falling apart. I'm 29. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. man, I'm like, I'm, I'm, you know, like, I just can't do the things I used to do. Like, <laughs> so for anyone young, it's going to be fine. It's not that bad. But yes, I agree. Well, I mean, and you mentioned like, you know, all the people that are telling you you can't do this and that there's all these reasons why, you know, your project or your idea is not going to succeed. And we really actively try to resist against that. So, you know, if a student comes to us with an idea, you know, we're suspending judgment for a very long time at the beginning because, you know, regardless of where the idea is when they come in, it could be the craziest, the dumbest thing that we've heard like 50 times. If they're really excited about it and want to continue going, that first person to believe in them, to tell them, oh, wow, that's a really cool thing. Like, have you heard about this other thing? You know, can we you know try to illuminate a possibility that this might be something worth pursuing, um, regardless of where it ends up at the beginning? So that's one of the biggest, I think, values in the in what we do is you know give people permission to start working on things, regardless Absolutely. of the you know merit that we think it might have at the yeah. beginning. That permission is like I think that's the word like, getting it right in the head. Yeah, yeah. I think especially as students too, because as you go through school and the education system, like permission, like does that that uh, you're you're the person that's learning. You're not really in control. Like, yeah, so that initial door opening up of permission is really important. I think. Yeah, it's all built on distrust. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like just not believing in students. You know, you give so many strict guidelines, and if people mess one thing up, they're like screwed for the rest of the semester. <laughs> right. Trying to dig yourself out of a hole, and like, it's just based on distrust and not believing that people can guide their own learning. Yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah. It also makes a huge assumption that whoever is, you know, the professor or, you know, the sage has the right, right, yeah, has yeah, the yeah. right answer. Yeah, and they, yeah. they set where the goalposts are mm-hmm. and assume that, you know, all the students assume that those are where the correct goalposts are. But if yeah. you look around, you know, in the world, you see, well, we haven't been doing a lot of things really great. For the <laughs> you know, time. So maybe the goalposts should be over yeah. here. Yeah, right. So this is what we try to help to do is let students define where, you know, success looks like for them. Yeah. And it might not be where, you know, society at this point is saying where it should be. I think there's also something there about like, sort of like straying off the question a bit, but it's fine probably. Um, you know, in school, there's so much about being taught things that are established. Like we, you know, and that's fine. That's, you know, it's good to learn that like, fucking vaccines are good. I mean, like, there's like, I don't know if I can say it, but I don't know if you want oh, to yeah. swear. But, um, <laughs> but in like learning math, and, like learning basic stuff is important. But also that the earth is round. That's good too. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, we should throw in some caveats here that like, <laughs> basic information should be taught in yeah. schools. We're having Kyrie Irving on. <laughs> but once you get to a certain point, it's like the most important work that students actually want to work on the most are the things that aren't well established yet and aren't solved. Right. So, like, that was one of the big motivations for us was like, how do you, you know, how can you have an education system where if you're going to class for like hundreds of hours every semester? And, like, none of them are trying to solve climate change. Like, what the fuck are we doing at this point? You know, like, like, and if none of them are trying to, like, address these massive injustices, 
So what you see is students forming their own clubs and organizations and just spending tons of time outside the classroom. It's oftentimes really fragmented and disorganized, and there's not a sense that like the university as an educational institution actually wants to support that in some sort of you know, slightly structured way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what Optimize kind of decided to do. And it's really taken off. You know, I mean, the first year we had 26 projects. This year we had 360. Yeah. And so, like, the, you can see that students want to work on these problems that don't fit neatly into any class. Yeah. And I think that's what we should be doing because he's wearing a Green New Deal shirt. We got, like, yes. 12 years. <laughs> 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 You guys have talked about the taglines a little bit and maybe just kind of helps to tell the story about, and we've been talking about it, where Optimize came from, but that tagline of why not me, like what's the story behind the tagline? So this was at our, our first ever event. So we, uh, we start, when we started, it was sort of, we were just, we were undergrad students ourselves and sort of frustrated that there wasn't places to work on these kind of things that we cared so much about. And so we started just going to a bunch of different organizations and you know, we'd go to sustainability organizations and we'd go to health organizations and community service organizations and social justice organizations. And there's like 1,200 organizations on campus, student organizations. And we went to all these places and said, hey, if there was a program where you could just work on your own self-directed projects in this, these areas that you care about, like, would you want to come do that? And everywhere we went, people were like, yeah, totally. Like, if we could get funding and mentorship and support, like, definitely. And then we'd also be like, hey, we actually were just talking with the people over at you know, this entrepreneurship group and at this community service group, like they're also interested, like, have you worked with them at all? And it was always like, no, 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 no. Like people were in their silos and they weren't like working together. And so we started to think like, well, let's try to invite all those people to an event together and try to kind of spark some initial projects from all these different kind of places and do it all in one place. And so we had a speaker who was going to kind of do like a keynote at that event. It was like our first ever event. We finally like, got the courage to like actually put it out there and invite people to something. And when I was talking to him, he was saying, well, what's the takeaway that you're hoping that the students who are in the audience will will have? Uh, It turned out we had like a hundred some people that came from the first event. And I just sort of like off the top of my head, I was like, well, I think like, you know, just telling your own story so that people can hear what you've done, but do it in a way that feels accessible so that they can think, well, Hey, why not me? And I just kind of said that. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I went home and like made up this little like crappy graphic design. I said, why not me? And now like seven years later, it's still <laughs> it's <laughs> like 5,000 t-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it just sort of took its own life. And people started like giving it even more meaning, you know, of, of like, of, you know, sort of this call to action of, you know, why not me? But also like a sense of inclusivity of like, if anyone can ask why not me, then everyone can ask why yeah. not me. You know? and, and so, you know, you should never have the, the situation where somebody is saying why not me because of my, you know, am I too young? Am I too this, too that, you know? And then it also sort of became this guiding principle for us of how to behave responsibly in a social innovation situation where, you know, you're at a university and our, our most successful projects definitely are ones where they're working in their own communities, people who are working on the problems that are already really close to them. But you always are going to have some level of privilege just being at a university and going and working on societal challenges, right? Like you're usually going to be coming from a position where in some ways, at least, you're in the more privileged position, especially at a place like this at Michigan. And so it sort of became this guiding question for us, too, of saying, like, if you're going to ask why not me, you have to do it honestly. 
and be honest with yourself mm-hmm. because there are certain situations why not you you know like yeah. there's there's certain issues that i just should never be out front on yeah. right like and, and i should just be in a support role there's certain communities that i don't know nearly enough to go in and even have the boldness to propose a solution like that would just be offensive to, you know sometimes right. and so sometimes that you know you have to just really ask yourself am i going about this in a way that's respect you know responsible so it's, i don't know it's just become this question that's serves all these purposes for us yeah yeah um, which is really has been cool yeah this branding people just that you like nailed that after saying a sentence like <laughs> man that's good it sticks around it means all these things like we're always like chasing after these things but they usually do come out of these like sort of random moments much as we try to force them sometimes yeah, like, so they, new, yeah someone like, from the united way was like can you give me like a, a new why not me we need a new slogan i was like I just imagine you're like in a conversation saying that, and then you just like stop the conversation. Like, I gotta stop up real quick. I gotta write this down before I forget. <laughs> I gotta go print five thousand t-shirts immediately. <laughs> I gotta go draw all this other micro, like Microsoft Paint. <laughs> so you talked at the beginning about like how like you had a now a department at the University of Michigan, mm-hmm. and so what we were curious about was learning more about what it was like, kind of bringing in the stakeholders from the university side. Because you talked about the students who were eager and dying for something like this, but about engaging the, the university and seeing the, and having them see the value for the students and for the university. Yeah, so I think the, the university sees a lot of value in the program that we have because there are a lot of students that are involved in it. Mm-hmm. And students are spending an enormous amount of time on our programs and they're doing incredible work. We have you know high school students from around the country who find out about our program and want to come to Michigan because of the program Optimize that's here. And I think that it's, you know, a really, it's an easy sell for us to students who want more out of their education than what it is that they're getting. And universities are really, at this point, kind of struggling to, you know, figure out what's our value proposition. You know, a residential college is, you know, the ticket price is enormous compared to what it was, you know, 30, even 15 years ago. I think that, you know, pure economic argument is, how can we have, you know, differentiation in what it is that we're doing? And, you know, for us, our program is such that there's a lot of students that are from completely different backgrounds that get involved. Really supportive community. Um, we're reflecting a more diverse population of students than I think there is at, um, in many other places That's around right, yeah. um, at what Michigan is as a predominantly white institution. So the university... I think certainly from an administrative standpoint, likes the the work that we're doing and thinks it's a positive example of, you know, what college could look like ultimately in the future. When we were first pitching it, we sort of caught them at this interesting moment. It was like 2012, 2013, when there was like a lot of hype around MOOCs, massive online open courses. Mm-hmm. And like MIT had just put their whole curriculum online yeah. for free. And there was like some sense of fear, I think, among big traditional universities around the whole like, well, what's the residential value question? If we were making that pitch today, I don't think it would have been as effective because the MOOC sort of surge sort of collapsed. Yeah. And people were like, well, it actually kind of sucks taking classes. But we sort of included that in our pitch. Of like, well, what, you know, what can't you do from behind computer screens in different locations? You can't really have these kind of projects. We are collaborating with people and getting out into the world together and creating this community, you know, and that was a big part of it. And then it really just took, you know, 
a lot of luck to have a moment where there was an opportunity for a certain administrator who we had built a really good relationship with to use a ton of political clout that he had and sort of spend a lot of that political capital on hiring me as the first staff hire for the program. And he sort of like, at first he was telling everyone, oh, he's going to be like a post-grad fellow. He's going to be like a temporary fellow where he's going to kind of come and kind of research how to continue this program that we think is kind of interesting coming up from the student end, you know, that could be valuable to the college for the reasons Jeff was saying, Mm -hmm. you know, like it's also just, it's a, it's a story factory, you know, every year there's so many stories and deans always need stories, you know, that they can go talk to people about that are interesting. It's not just like we had this many students in math class this year. It's like, no, students are creating this project (laughs) that, yeah, that, all the amazing stuff that's happening. Often. And um, deans need their like signature thing too, which yeah. is interesting <laughs> you've learned about. Yeah. So he saw the value in that, but this, this administrator sort of was framing it initially, like, oh, it's just going to be this light touch thing. Yeah. And as soon as I was in the door, he like completely changed the messaging. was like, <laughs> Jeff's on our staff. Welcome to our newest staff member. This is going to be a thing. Yeah. And then over the next couple of years, it was sort of like we had the one staff position and then we got a second staff position. And then we started saying, well, now we have two staff positions, like, but we don't have anywhere to be housed. Like maybe we should actually like have our own department that's called Optimize. And like, and so surprisingly they went for that. Like, (laughs) so it's created a new department called Optimize. It's a little different than a department. It's like a, at U of M, there's sort of non-curricular departments, which is what we are. And then it was like, well, okay, now we have a department, like we should probably have a budget (laughs) (laughs) sort sort of went from like, you know, we were just like asking for money every year, kind of discretionary money every year for the first four years. And then after a while, it was kind of like, well, no, you should have like a annual budget, just like any other department. And so then we kind of got that, you know, and and then it's like, well, any department with a budget should have like a working space. And so then we got this sweet working space. (laughs) We were working out of coffee shops for the first five years, you know, and so it was sort of just this incremental process of like getting a foot in the door, sliding through that door, (laughs) getting a foot in another door, sliding through that and just having really great support from the, you know, the associate dean um, and the dean, you know, who we worked with. Yeah. who've understood the value and, and really were examples of what it looks like to trust students. So there's really like probably a very savvy entrepreneurial or change management tip in that story, I think, which yeah. is like, just tell everyone it's temporary. Yeah. It's like an experiment. We're yeah. going to see how this plays out. And everyone's like, okay, I can get my head around that. <laughs> you ran in with like an annual budget on day one. Uh, yeah. Like, okay. Can't do Slow that. down. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. That's what the current associate dean, Angela Dillard, says, just call it a pilot. And just, you know, <laughs> the pilots never go away. <laughs> well, the university, it's like a, a very obviously big institution that, that resists massive changes. And so we've had to really incrementally build up, um, even though we've, you know, become this really huge thing. Like we had solid, like consistent growth year over year. And, you know, our student participation, the amount of support that we were able to, you know, fundraise and that kind of thing, um, which I think has been good for, you know, the sustainability of what it is that we're doing. It's helped us keep the, you know, the feel of what Optimize was like, you know, six, seven years ago. But it, it hasn't changed that much. You know, I remember the first couple of events. Yeah. There's a lot of energy, a lot of enthusiasm and passion from both the students and the mentors. 
And now there's, you know, 10 times as many people, but you still feel the similar way, which I think is unique. Yeah. There's, I think like our thing, well, you're right about the fundraising. We, we raised a million dollars one year and then we became the department. So I, I do think that helps also. Maybe put that out there. But, but, um, but I think now like we do have, you know, this department structure around it, but the reason that it still feels cool and like people still want to be a part of it. And it's not just like these kind of aging guys, you know, running this program is that it's the collaboration with the student organization. So every year there's new leadership running this program, even though we have this departmental structure, we actually don't make decisions without the students. It's all collaborative. So it's kind of like every year we, we don't take for granted the fact that it's not easy to stay the cool organization. Right. Yeah. Like organizations come and go of what's cool on this campus, like every couple of years. And we've been there for seven years. So like every year we're kind of like, we don't want to give that up. <laughs> so. Taking a step back a little bit, you mentioned the idea of luck and you talked about how uh, when you kind of essentially kind of validated the idea by going to the different student orgs to see if they'd be interested in it and talked a little bit about timing for the MOOCs and how like came in just right for that. So where the question I wanted to ask was, what do you see in terms of the timing and luck of you going and asking people about their interest in essentially entrepreneurship, how that's the timing around 2012 when the I think the social zeitgeist of uh, the concept of entrepreneurship became really popular and cool. Like, how do you think that, that if any role that that played in these uh, kids being interested in, in like, yeah, if I had the opportunity to do something like this, I would totally do it. Oh, it's huge. I mean, I think, I think like, I'm not at all a believer that like all you need is hard work and then you'll succeed. Like you need so much luck, you know I mean? And so for us to kind of find that moment when it was really interesting to us and an institution like University of Michigan wasn't moving fast enough. It was like, you know, it probably actually started in like 20, like before 2012, you know, it's probably a few years before that would have been the moment when like there already was student energy. And there was actually a, a club that was like the big entrepreneurship club on campus before us that sort of like showed that there's so much student energy, but the university institutionally was slow to respond. So I think we actually got there at the right moment when, the energy was there and the university was late. And so it's sort of like, well, we're just going to start doing it. And it opened that door for the university to say, oh, we're late and now they're doing it. So let's just work with them because they've already got it going. All right. We weren't the first mover, certainly. No, being the second mover is where you want to be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, some of the key differences is that, you know, the usually student organizations, the, you know, life cycle is the founders, you know, are the, you know, the heart and soul of what the work is. Um, and without them, you know, the organization is sort of just the shell of its former self. And we would see this with, you know, major other student org leaders graduating and going off to do incredible work in other places, but it's really hard to make a sustainable turnover model happen. And part of the reasons why, you know, we stayed here and, you know, after we graduated to, to continue to work on Optimize was so that we could figure out how to make it keep going. There's so much institutional knowledge that we have based on the things that we did in years, you know, one through three that have really benefited, you know, the students who have come over and taken the helm in years four through you know, seven. Yeah. Um, and I, I think like in terms of the cultural moment, too, of like there's something to kind of like understanding what the sort of the vocabulary of that is 
but then also sort of being like making fun of it a little bit. So we kind of came in at this moment when like it was, it was so getting so popular. If you know the idea of being an entrepreneur, like this was back when everybody liked Mark Zuckerberg. Like people actually thought like any entrepreneur was cool at that moment. And so like we kind of came into it at that moment when it was so popular and we would sort of play on it a little bit. Like, you know, sometimes, you know, we were aware of kind of the kind of messaging that you could sort of get into that space and sort of like, but then we also would sort of be the ones who were like mocking it, you know, <laughs> and sort of like, kind of like, almost like we like, we're talking trash about Zuckerberg, like when everyone still liked him and like, just kind you of like hipsters. <laughs> I, I think that's kind of like, that's what all my, like my favorite bands do, you know, like they understand like what kind of like the pop culture scene is, but then they sort of like, they sort of play on it. They like sort of do it, but they also like, it's a, they like recognize that the vocabulary is so well known that it's not even interesting to just like fully play into it. Like if you saw like a band where like the singer was just like wearing like Ray bands and a black jacket and like pretending they're super cool. Like this generation, I'm just be like, all right, man, like, <laughs> like <laughs> that just doesn't work anymore. Yeah. And like, and so I think it's the same thing with like this whole entrepreneurial thing. It's like, it wouldn't work to go in and just be so earnestly. Like we love Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. Like we think this should be like, you know, yeah. so we sort of like, I always think we sort of had this sort of edge to what we were doing where we were sort of like, yeah, like social innovation, but like, also, like, most social innovation stuff is kind of bullshit, you know? Like, yeah, so we yeah. kind of were like, I don't know, we were like a little, I think we've been aware of that. You could have we, set everyone up, like, you guys aren't in a garage, literally. Right. Yeah, like, this is, yeah, there's just, that's too <laughs> yeah, much. Yeah. And nobody likes being a part of those kind of right. things, you know? I feel like that's what a lot of university entrepreneurship programs look like, is like, what they thought, like, they tried to speak the vocabulary so in a yeah. straightforward way that it's not cool. You know, like if nobody in 2012 who's 18 years old yeah. is like fantasizing about starting a company in a garage. Yeah. Like that's just like, that's like an old idea that's right. played itself out. Yeah. So I, I don't know where I'm going with this, yeah. but I, I feel like yeah. we have a little bit of fun with like the, the sort of the culture around it. Yeah. And I think understanding that it does like part of what it keeps it probably sustainable too. And like having some, like they, you know, then the new blood that comes in each year yeah. can probably do that in a way where those of us that are 28 and a half and above or whatever it is, um, maybe can, yeah. we're not as cool as we think we are anymore. Totally. Cause yeah. you find that you find that like, you know, if people come in and they're sort of making fun of the things that you were earnest about just a few years ago. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, oh man. Like, and then so you kind of learn like, oh, like that's, it's more fun to make fun of it now. Right. You know, like, right. like, so like you do sort of shift when you have like 18 year olds coming in that you, like our friends are like 18 to 19 year olds oh, yeah. now. Yeah. And like the vocabulary they, they have is like so much more aware of, of the bullshit of the previous vocabularies, right. you know? And so like, you start to learn like, okay, like, where are the things that we keep and what are the things that we start to kind of yeah. make fun of now? And from like a, a purely like programmatic design perspective, you know, the people who are it's designing, like, back on the <laughs> they're, designing <laughs> our they're designing our program. The students are involved. Like they understand deeply, like what it is that students need and how to communicate and like the, the experience. And, you know, that gives us a huge advantage. Because, you know, if the whoever is, you know, making the decisions about how it's going can, like, look at their own experience and reflect on, oh, does this sound good to me? Or somebody, you know, that is a peer of mine? Like, yeah, I'm going to be, you know, more 
likely to, you know, come to this event, um, connect with this, you know, Facebook post or video or whatever it is, the, you know, networking effect there and just the uh, level of the lack of separation between who's designing the program and who's participating, I think is, is huge in keeping us relevant. Oh, yeah. Um, so we see a lot of different programs that are around, you know, that are, you know, at the university designed by administrators who, you know, have been on, you know, faculty for a while and maybe started like a business at some point, but they don't really understand like what draws a student to, you know, do things. You just imagine it's like a bunch of like 50 year old guys around the table being like, look, the kids will like this. Yeah. <laughs> I like this when I was a kid. Right. But, and it's yeah. nothing against them. Everyone has a role to play. Yeah. But, but I think that there is something to having students designing stuff. Yeah. We talked a little bit already, um, but I wanted to ask more specifically about this idea of like, skills that you guys are developing and skills that may or may not like lend you as an individual to being an entrepreneur. So you guys have seen a lot of students come through now. So you may have some particular insight into this. You have insight to those who became fellows and those who didn't for all sorts of reasons, I'm sure. But we're just curious to hear from both of you about like what skills you think have led to successful fellows. Success, again, like framing it for optimize isn't always like scaling to be a unicorn business but successfully going through that process. And maybe part of that is figuring out if they should continue on that or do something else. But mm-hmm. you guys have some good, at least anecdotal and probably real data around what that maybe looks like. Yeah, I'd say like, you might not really define this as a skill, but like persistence and perseverance, those are two things that I think yeah. are really, really important. Given that there's a lot of naysayers, a lot of people, you know, who are going to be, you know, even people who you think are your supporters are going to say, no, this doesn't, this is not going to work. I, I like to point to the example of the Michigan Prison Dual Initiative, which is bringing doula services to incarcerated women. Three years ago, the student came who had been a doula and said, you know, this is, you know, something that I care so, so, so deeply about that when a woman's getting pregnant in prison, she's shackled to the bed. And this was at the time when nobody was really talking about this. No one had exposed, you know, the injustice outside of this, you know, the niche communities that were really focused on that social justice issue. And her professors and other people were saying, you know, it's so difficult to work with the prison system. Like you can't do it. But she, you know, was so uh, invested and persistent in that work that, you know, Fast forward two years later, she's working with, you know, a cohort of over 30 women, I think, in the Huron Valley Women's Prison um, because she kept going. And, you know, that's one of the, the skills that, you know, we have hundreds and hundreds of students who apply to our program and start participating. And regardless of the merit of their ideas, if they keep working on them, you know, we have probably, mm-hmm. you know, 50% to 60% of people just quit and give up. Mm-hmm. And that's not going to make you a good entrepreneur right, in right. the long run. Like yeah. you're going to have to deal with, you know, people saying no, the failure, that that sort of thing. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's a huge thing. I think a lot of people, you know, one or two things goes wrong and you think, well, I suck at this, you know, and, and, and what I always tell people, I mean, I try to sort of front, front end this um, where when I'm talking to a new group or even like for the summer fellows, you know, they've been involved for a while, but last night I was talking about this, just like letting them know, like, you know, I'm full of self-doubt and anxiety all the time. (laughs) Anyone in this room, you know, if you, if you think that you're the only one who's unsure about what you're doing or losing your direction or spinning your wheels or feeling like you're, you're fucking everything up and 
Like, I guarantee you, all of us are feeling that. So, like, let's just talk to each other about it. So, I do think there's there's something to that too in, mm-hmm. in the persistence of just recognizing, like, you know, I think people get told that like bad feelings are bad and you're bad if you feel them, and it's like we all feel this, you know. And it's, so, I do think that there's a lot of social stigmas too, where if mm-hmm. you sort of you you self select yourself out of the situations where you're going to be feeling those you know challenging emotions. But I think another thing is just self-awareness. So like for us, like when we you know, first hear about projects, some of them you just know that they're going to, you know, this person's going to really do well. And some people you kind of know, uh, probably not going to see that person very much again. And some of it is just around, is this person coming in speaking from a perspective of their own experience mm-hmm. that's deeply informing what they're doing? Or is this somebody who's kind of like, you know, what we really need is like an app that like, barks at me when I walk by a coffee shop because yeah. let me know that, you know, I have a hard time finding coffee shops. You know, it's like, it sounds like you just want to, you want to start building an app, but like, you don't really think about, you know, like, I just really wish I, I, I want to be careful not to say anything about projects that have actually yeah. been through optimized. So, but every year we get some that it's just kind of like, you know, the, the problem that you're talking about doesn't feel like it really came from you actually reflecting and saying what is actually deeply painful for me and what would I like to address, you know, and, or, or, you know, deeply painful for people that I know and care about. So I think that that's a huge one. Yeah. You, you even hear that on like VC side too. Like I think more of the air quotes, good ones will talk about like the level of passion they have towards solving that idea. And usually that's because you've experienced, like you're kind of solving your own problem in a way, which can feel, I guess, selfish outside looking in, but no, like you understand it deeply. You understand that it's a problem and you can tell when people have that versus maybe they just really want to be an entrepreneur or maybe they're a developer who just wants to build an app. It doesn't matter to them. Yeah. Whether it barks at a coffee shop or does something else. <laughs> yeah. So it, there's some probably like information, like you said, back to self-awareness. Like if you're paying attention, you might be realizing the things you really want to do versus starting this thing or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I also think that to be a little more precise, I think we're sort of talking about what is it, what are the successful traits for people who are starting their own or working on their own sort of socially oriented projects through Optimize? Because I do think sometimes to be an entrepreneur, if there's some other things that, you know, people need, some of which I think are good and some of which I think are not so good. <laughs> right. And Optimize has sort of become this funny place where, you know, we'll help people start companies if they are genuinely aiming at, you know, the public good with what they're doing. Mm-hmm. But we also, I think, in some ways have used that whole, like, the entrepreneurship innovation sort of, like, wave yeah. to kind of create a little bit of cover for us to sort of, like fund these very sort of lefty projects that I, that I think <laughs> yeah. are really cool. Yeah. You know? so, so it's sort of like a lot of these are just not, they don't want to be entrepreneurs. Yeah. They want to address climate change and inequality and, and, and different inequities and, and do those in ways that, you know, people would call them socialists if they didn't have the word optimized, you know, kind of like regarding <laughs> them and you know, no one would give them money. So like, I feel like we sort of serve that role sometimes too. Yeah. I do think it requires, like, I think it's good to have people who might be entrepreneurs thinking about solving those problems. I think at the end of the day, like, the base level of what most good entrepreneurs have in common is, like, they're pretty good at solving problems, even if it's uncertain. Yeah. You know, like, mm-hmm. like it comes back, like, resilience and things you are talking about before. Yeah. There's just always that, like, base level thing. So I think it's great to have a place to yeah. focus on that when people don't see, like, 
it's going to be Uber right. or something from right. an economic right. standpoint. Shout out to their IPO doing poorly. <laughs> yeah, they're not trying to be the, <laughs> yeah. they're not trying to take uh, on-demand laundry to the next level. That's no, yeah, it doesn't seem that pressing. <laughs> yeah, no. See, we, don't, we don't even want to, you know, attract necessarily the students who want to be entrepreneurs. If I see yeah. a student who says, I want to be an entrepreneur, I say, oh, great, go find a problem and come back to yeah. me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like, that's the point. Like, yeah. it's, you know, figuring out a way to solve the problem. Yeah. Your point. There are, I think there is a lot of overlap between kind of the venture capital, venture capitalists, kind of, you know, what it takes to yeah. do well in that. And then some people sort of lovingly call us venture socialists. Like, there's overlap there, but then there's also important differences. So I guess, like, I think we're talking about some of those things that might overlap. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. As far as like other like tangible skills that I think are really, really uh, beneficial to any students that are participating in our program, outreach um, and communication, certainly, you know, you, you're going to need to talk with other people about your ideas, both, you know, in person and, you know, over email, sometimes 50 emails uh, going out before you get one back in your inbox. You Shamelessness know. is a good skill. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. 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 But also, yeah. you know, reflection, figuring out, okay, you know, I've done a lot of work. Um, you know, I've had some wins, some losses, you know, where am I at? What happened? Yeah. What can I, you know, do from here? You know, identifying those sort of goals and how to, you know, head toward targets, you know, creating a vision and, and sharing that with people. Those are, I think, all tangible skills yeah. that regardless of what it is that they're applied to, are going to be able to, you know, benefit somebody and and help uh, at least move their project forward in some way. Maybe piggybacking on that a little bit, we wanted to talk about like for anybody who's starting, even if it's just we're talking specifically about like social impact projects, or if it's a business or not, project might be a better word yeah. at this phase. That but could be, yeah, yeah. but I mean, in any event, whatever it's called, like, do you guys have ideas on that? Like how can you test maybe if your ideas is worth pursuing like these basic things? Again, you see like that's a loaded question probably with a social issue attached to it. Like they're all sort of worth pursuing, but from like, are you in the right like audience or maybe things like that also that you guys have seen through your experience? What are ways to kind of checkpoint yourself that you've seen that have been effective, if any? I think that the, the complication with the social issue is just that, you know, a lot of the, I think really effective ways of doing prototype, quick prototyping for projects that are just purely kind of business oriented for your, maybe your customers or other businesses and stuff like that is that the level, you know, the, the idea is kind of like, it's like the move fast and break stuff, you know, kind of mentality. Well, when you're working with marginalized populations, you don't want to break stuff, you yeah. know, right? Like there's enough stuff already broken. Like you don't want to be going in and like, causing more harm right so i do think that there's some sort of on a on a general sense like we like a lot of like the lean startup stuff i think that that's really helpful i think that we we bring in a lot of people to talk about like design thinking actually just bringing in designers is usually one of the best ways to start really prototyping any kind of thing whether it's a service or a product yeah. it's just bringing people whose whole job it is to think about how do people use things and how do I not waste a ton of time building stuff that people actually won't know how to use or don't yeah. want to use? And so we bring in, you know, designers to work with our students on that kind of stuff and they can speak to it even better than I can. But it's, it's generally the idea that how do you start with something really simple and ugly, but that has the basic minimum, you know, minimum viable, yeah. you know, kind of features to it that you can see if people are even wanting to engage with this. 
But with the social element, it really does get more complicated Mm -hmm. where there's sort of this balance in Optimize where you have to sort of, I think it, it again gets to the idea of sort of like not fully like buying into the vocabulary because what we do is we present these things, but then we also say like, but this might be totally wrong for you, mm-hmm. you know? So like nothing that we teach you is necessarily right. You need yeah. to decide for yourself if this makes sense for you. And so if you're building something where there's a lot more risk involved for harm, like maybe your version of prototyping is actually just a lot of conversations with stakeholders, you know, mm-hmm. and like really getting to know people who are involved in the community and co-creating. Yeah. And those, those conversations, a lot of times will encourage students to, you know, talk with the leaders of these initiatives and say, you know, what are some of the gaps that you see in this space from somebody who's been in the space for a while and understands how to interact with, you know, different communities that a student may not have had any exposure to. Yeah. Well, that's like, you know, it's like a different type of market validation from the like traditional entrepreneurship world. Like, you maybe think there's a problem, but especially if you're in a university setting, like here, have access to that. You can go talk to people pretty easily that are absolutely looking at the whole landscape of it for a while. Yeah. And then once you build that level of trust, you can start doing more of the sort of rapid prototyping if, if there's real trust. Yeah. But, but yeah, you, you need that first. Yeah. yeah. I hate to put a word in your guys' mouth, but it sounds like uh, an idea that you both just talked about in terms of a, a valuable skill for an entrepreneur or someone's working on a project is a sense of humility, kind of knowing yeah. that even though you have a passion or a desire or know the problem, you may not know everything about it. You need the help and being able to acknowledge that, having that self-awareness to reach out and know that you need support in order to make this thing truly come to life. Yeah, Absolutely. I approach most of life assuming that I'm mostly wrong about yeah, most yeah, things. Yeah. <laughs> I know a lot of successful people that have at least some some percentage of that as a part of their DNA. Yeah. Like you never think it and then you start to talk to people more and more and they're like, yeah, I don't know. Like this is working, but yeah. there's a lot of things that aren't and I'm bad at most of them. There's that type of thing. Yeah. I, this is actually one of my sort of pet projects of trying to like, you know, the students that we have the most influence over, you know, the students that work closest to us, I kind of try to get this mindset because I think that there's a lot of sense that like science will solve everything and actually science already knows a ton and pretty soon science will rebuild the human brain and solve climate change and we'll all be fine. Science has got this. And it's like, I don't know if any of you have read Noam Chomsky, but like one of his, he says a lot, he's got a lot to say about a lot of things, but one of his, I think the things that I've learned most from reading him and, and, and learning from him is he basically says, look, like, People know, science knows very little about large molecules. Once you get up to mammals, you're basically just guessing. (laughs) And when you get to humans, it's just say whatever you want. (laughs) Because, like, we know almost nothing. You know, and when you get to, like, social relations between humans, like, science has very little to say. And so if you have to just approach from an idea of, like, look, like, I have some intuition. Other people do, too. If people have observations, there's cultural learning. People, you know, you can gain some sense of understanding of how things work. But it's not like a scientific thing where, like, if you just are learned enough, like, you have the answers. Like, we, we don't know almost anything about humans. Right. And I've, I'm not convinced that we can, even can understand a lot of this yeah. stuff. Because, um, like, we're finite. We're biological beings. But AI, though. <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> it's like a whole can Right? I think it's it. absolutely absurd yeah. <laughs> to think that artificial intelligence is going to recreate human intelligence because we just know nothing about human intelligence almost nothing at all and so like it's just such an arrogant thought that like we're pretty soon going to do this you know you can build narrow AI, but anyway but i i try to bring that 
that perspective a lot of just like, look, everybody, like you've got to just go and try to try to understand and try to learn from other people and how they see things. But the reality is that if we just, yeah, we, we don't know. Yeah. And like, it doesn't matter if you have the fanciest degrees and you have the most of them or how much money you make or anything like that on the fundamental human level. Most of us don't know very much for certain about how any of this works. Yeah. I think this ties into our next topic really well, but um, especially learning this as a student, is really important in my mind, at least because we talked about this earlier that as a student, you're learning from somebody. So, and usually it's science-based, hopefully science-based, then it's like uh, very black and white. It's like, if you get the answer right, you get an A. If you don't, you yeah. get an F, right? So <laughs> mm-hmm. it's very black and white and being able to teach kids at a young enough age is like, well, it's not black and white. Like not everybody wants to be healthy. You want to think that science says that, <laughs> like health is important, but that's not true when you go out and see human behavior Yeah, or like my safety is most important, but I'm driving above speed limit and I'm texting. Like, <laughs> I'm putting other things above like just what science is telling me we're it's, weird. it's, we're weird it's right yeah. So. yeah yeah the whole field of economics that's <laughs> 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 one of my other pet projects but yeah no that's that's right yeah so he was talking about uh, the next topic we, again we've kind of organically hit on this a little bit I want to make sure you guys are okay on time since we're, mm-hmm. we're, we're close uh, to yeah, it I don't know we, I'm sorry, listeners, if we're getting a little bit long. <laughs> They'll survive. Yeah. It's just them. his mom and my mom. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very targeted audience, actually. I, I heard one definition of podcast is it's, it's that thing that other people who have podcasts listen to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> to, to make their podcast better. Self-sustaining economy. Yeah. So, again, we've touched on this a little bit already, I think, but like the role of education and how it looks in the future, like, I think you guys are are part of part of this um, and what you're doing, but obviously with the digital education, like MIT launching them on video, we know that wasn't quite the silver bullet answer that maybe they might have thought it was back in 2012. Like students now can just like go on Skillshare and learn design thinking, like maybe not as effectively as in a classroom, but they can get introduced to it pretty well through lots of means. Where does our education system need to sort of shift to keep up with these changes? Obviously, optimize is one solution to that. Maybe getting into the vision of where you guys go from here uh, versus where you guys have come since 2012. That may be a big question, yeah. but we'll let you it's a bit, yeah, stab it. I'll take a like crack at it. Yeah, I think that you won't be graded as we've discussed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's like actually yeah. kind of the point is no grades. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. I think they're trying to do that. Really, you know, there's a lot of problems in having, you know. The, the outcome of a letter be, you know, how you tie success and, you know, value and worth to yourself, you know, and optimize, you know, this is a co-curricular experience and students will, you know, judge their own, you know, impact based on how they feel it was and the number of people and, you know, the, the work that they're doing specifically. And so I think that, you know, the higher education should be moving away from grades as fast as possible to, you know, competency-based, you know, impact-based, you know, practice. And, you know, that said, like, you know, there's still, like Jeff mentioned before, value in learning, you know, basic skills and techniques, especially, you know, from the, the perspective of, like, accessing information and understanding, like, history, history. <laughs> and, and yeah. what has happened in the last, yeah. you know, few millennia. Just... 
purely because I think that a lot of the, you know, social, you know, challenges that we need to, you know, solve, like if we're bringing in all these wickedly smart people into, you know, couple square miles of radius, why aren't we having people, you know, work on these things in collaboration and, you know, try some things out versus, you know, the the traditional, you know, memorize some things, take some tests, write some papers. And then, you know, get your other piece of paper and then, you know, be about your merry way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, in addition to like history and and the need for, I agree with everything you said, but I also think, and, you know, hopefully this clarifies a bit of what I said earlier, you know, it might've sounded like I was kind of down on science, you know, saying science actually doesn't know very much, but I actually think that like developing a real scientific mindset is one of the most important things that education can do if it can do it at scale, you know, if, 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 everyone could develop that because i think that to be you know the, the scientific method is incredibly simple <laughs> like you see children practicing it before they've ever been taught it you know like even like babies basically are like testing stuff out seeing if it's repeatable right. seeing so, you know, kind of like trying to figure out how the world works a little bit and it's as far as we know the best way to understand how the world works but i think it also if you're gonna like, if you're an arrogant scientist, you're going to be a shitty scientist, right? Even if as just a, a general sort of scientist of life, right? Like, and I think that that sense of humility that comes with trying to understand something in a way and realizing that, you know, what, what are the limits of my understanding, you know, and, and how do I kind of try to go from where I know I am to some, you know, extending myself a little bit to try to figure something else out. But then really assessing that and saying, well, what have, what have I learned here? You know, I, I think that there's so much sort of like arrogance and laziness in how people form their view of the world a lot of the time. And a lot of that's because our education system really doesn't train people that it's actually good to be to not know. You know, it's, it's good to admit that you don't know because otherwise you're just going to be bullshitting everybody yeah. and you become dishonest to yourself, you know, and you become mm-hmm. dishonest to everyone. If you're really thinking scientifically, that there's no room for that, right? Like you, you, you have to approach it from humility. And I think, so I think like scientific, you know, thinking is, is hugely important. But then the corollary to that, which is if we're really honest about that, we recognize that there's tons of stuff that can't be well understood with this method still. And so we should, you know, I think there needs to be a lot also just about trusting our instincts that suffering is bad and let's try to like, right. you know. Well, I think that's, that's one of the great things about optimizes. I think the way I view it is there's this academic thing, which might be like learning what a method is like scientific method or something much more complex, the whole gamut of that, but you get to apply it. And it's like, then figure out you really don't know because I remember when I was 19 or 20, like I thought I knew a lot of stuff. And this is yeah. the thing that like old people always say to young people until we all die. Yeah. Um, but there is, it, <laughs> yeah. there is like truth to it because yeah. you haven't applied anything. Yeah, yeah. Even if you read it, like you can be feel really good about that. Like one book you read on a topic and you're like, that becomes your whole sort of like framework yeah. for a thing. And if you don't get to apply that framework, even to a prototype, right? Mm-hmm. Like, Oh, this will solve it. It's like, it's like, we even get this with that even kids in our head all the time asking people like i've got it all in my head it's like you probably don't yeah i even do that right it's like it's up here it's like it's not like a really fragmented version of it so if you have to make a prototype then you have to explain it to other people or you have Mm -hmm. to send an email explaining what it does to other people yeah that stuff is so 
valuable because a lot of them will either not respond or they'll be like, this doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So then it's like you, they, they're validating you maybe don't know, or you're not explaining it well enough so that other people could find some value in it. So right. I just like, I love, that's my favorite thing about what you all do here. And I think uh, there's something to that, that. I just remembered this is the other thing. So like one is like teaching people how to really think scientifically. And the other is making people think for themselves mm-hmm. yeah. because I, I think that and not making actually that's an ironic phrase helping people to understand that they are they are drowning in orthodoxy and helping remove that is helping them understand that like we can remove this ortho these things that we believe just because right like so many people believe things just because but if you really have to you know try something and explain it for yourself like and think about it for yourself and think is this even something I want to be doing? Is this something I really believe? Why? How, what's my level of certainty on it? You know, um, I, I think like one of the biggest things that we're trying to do with Optimize is tell people like, we're never going to tell you what to work on. You got to decide that. Yeah. We're never going to tell you how you should run your projects. You got to decide that. You know, we don't know the answer. How can we possibly know? Like, you don't know either, but at least you're focused more on it. So like, you should try to focus on your own actions and your own project. And I think like, as much as possible, lifting sort of the dark curtains of orthodoxy where you just believe what everyone else believes because that's what powerful people tell you to believe. That's what education needs to do. And if, if that happened widespread, that'd be it'd create a revolution in society because like the way education is designed now is to get people to obey. Right. We want the exact opposite. Also, yeah. nothing stunts progress quite like just being like, well, conformity is the same, yeah. the same thing. Somebody has to question it at some point whether they're supposed to or not. Yeah, I think part of the reason why we were inspired to ask this question was you guys was we've heard a lot of people just shitting on like like secondary education, like college is like the biggest scam ever. Gary Vee just really kind of came out recently and said like this is the last generation that we're going to college is an important milestone in life because you can do things and like think on your think for yourself go and learn how the world actually works instead of having to conform to this this orthodoxy that you're just talking about so part of the that was part of the motivation of asking you like where do you think education needs to go mm-hmm. to continue to still feel valuable other than just getting a piece of paper that you can frame and maybe hang up on your wall yeah gary v has some insightful things to say but if if the world went the direction that his vision for the world is to be a pretty bleak world. <laughs> he just, he just wants, he always says, you just got to adapt. This is just how it is. Yeah. You adapt to whatever the current circumstances. And like, there's some wisdom in that for a certain, like if you limit that statement enough, yeah. but that's sort of his whole thing. He's like, you just adapt to this. The world is going where it is. You, you know, right. do your best <laughs> to succeed in it. And it's like, well, at that point, you know, you're, you know, building bunkers in New Zealand and like, trying to survive the apocalypse like uh, like building marketing also versus like social impact like that's where i think the departure of the entrepreneurship conversation is pretty stark right like because that that application works for just like growth and expansion of business you know probably more a larger percentage way but like not so much for social it's like well just let it go like the climate's falling apart right just adapt to that like make a suit that protects you for as long as possible you know like that's one way to look at it, but also right. stopping the climate from yeah. from changing is another way to. I, I think that you know, there's there's a few people like there's a lot of people sort of who are trying to work toward a more just, more sustainable world, 
then there's a lot of people who are just completely, you know, going along with the way things are and just trying to be successful in that structure, which, you know, I, for some people, maybe that's the way to do it. I think Gary's background was, you know, such maybe that that made sense for him. But then there's sort of on the other scale, you see like what the extreme really leads to, you know, what all of that is serving. It's these people like Peter Thiel who are doing this stuff, actually building bunkers. And like, there's, there are people who are really preparing for, for like nuclear fallout and using their wealth and resources to do that, to prepare themselves and protect themselves. If it's me, if I'm preparing for that kind of future, I would fall, I would fall into such a deep depression like, it wouldn't even be worth it. Putting right. that much focus on it. It's like, oh, if you have, like, a billion dollars, though, it's like, I don't know, toss a bunker somewhere. Tell yeah. me where it is. When if there's a nuclear <laughs> war, I want to die in it. You yeah, know, like, right. I don't want to be, the, like, the one building a fucking bunker in New Zealand. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to live in the Mad Max world, like, right? the Thunderdome. Not really. Um, but it, it seems so hyperbolic to talk about this, but, like, this is the world we're living in. Like, right. that's actually what's happening. Yeah. And so, for us, yeah, I think education, there's so many more people who would really love to change society and not even have to worry about that. But if you, but so many people are still so blinded by just sort of ideas that they've never thought about and they just think this is how it is. And you don't realize, well, that's serving a certain people and they like it when you think that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it also is pretty hard to get to a place like this. So I think education should be free. Yeah. And, for everybody. And yeah. it's just fundamentally not right now in yeah. the world that we live in. Right. Um, the biggest takeaway I got from this is that if a student's interested in joining Optimize in the next cohort, they should not pitch an idea of a uh, bunker, like <laughs> low cost bunkers in New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> bunkers for all. <laughs> 3D printed nuclear bunkers. That would be pretty sad. It's like somebody comes in, they're like, look, I believe in equality, I believe in inclusion. I just think. We're fucked, so let's just do the bunker thing for everybody. <laughs> just getting that out of the way, but still bunkers. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're going to move you guys into the slow burn. Go I, I think I've already yeah. set myself up here. It's <laughs> been on fire all afternoon. I, I, yeah, I mean, I didn't even talk about the vision for optimizing the future, but whatever. It's yeah. generally along those principles. You may create some space here yeah. in, the, in this next section. Yeah, I think we could do that. You guys are now in the slow burn. The first question which is the one that does not trip people up, people think it is the one that uh, is, the, is a tripper, is how do you each define success? I think John Wooden had a pretty good definition. I'm probably going to misquote him right now, but if you, I don't know if you do. Like, you wouldn't put notes at the end. Yeah. He and Abraham Lincoln just get yeah, all so go for it. But he said something <laughs> like, and this was a, apparently a definition that he came up with when he was still like a high school basketball coach. And then he you know, put this forward and obviously he became like the most successful coach ever. They won like, they won like six years in a row or something yeah, crazy like that. Crazy, yeah. Yeah. He said success, su- success is the self-satisfaction that comes from the peace of mind of knowing that you did the best that you could do. And I liked it because it's, it's self-satisfaction. You're the only one that will necessarily know that no one else can tell you, you have to just know it yourself. And, you know, that peace of mind can't come from any awards or anything else. If you know that you, you, you know, half-assed something, you know, you, you're always going to know. You can lie to yourself, but like, right. yeah, so I like that. Okay. I mean, for me, it's, it's kind of about just reflecting on the things that are most important to me, which are, you know, relationships, respect and responsibility. And am I 
you know, living out my values and can I reflect whatever day that it is and say that I'm doing that? I think, yeah, pretty, pretty good day, pretty decent, uh, pretty decently uh, successful existence at the moment. So, like both of those answers. All right. We talked a little bit earlier about self-doubt and uh, if you think you're, you don't have any self-doubt, then you're BSing yourself. <laughs> uh, describe a time when you experience self-doubt, whether it was starting optimized or just any today even. So, mm. I experienced a little bit of self-doubt in that last answer when I got really weird. <laughs> I'll find the soapbox talking about orthodoxies blinding us all. <laughs> we'll fiber it out and have somebody like, put it into an ebook or something. <laughs> yeah, for me, like, you know, I, you know, when I'm working with students in, in Optimize and they're, you know, looking up to me and saying, hey, you know, I need help with this. I think, holy shit, like, can I really help them? Like, I, I've had a pretty, you know, limited range of experiences myself. And so every time, you know, somebody new comes in with a new, you know, project, I think, crap, like, is this something that I can actually help move forward? Um, so I, you know, I need to check myself and say, like, oh, wait, no, you've been doing this a lot. You know, some you know good strategies of how to do this. You can't have all the answers. But, you know, there's certainly something that, you know, I feel like I can offer that could potentially help them move toward where they're going. So, yeah, I think more seriously for me, I think I just, I don't know. I always feel some amount of doubt of like, is the way, is the work that we're doing really making a difference, you know, and, or should I be spending my time differently? And in, in that case, sometimes it really does help to have other people say, no, it's making an impact for me, yeah. you know? And, and so that's helpful. And then I think the other area that gets me really practiced in dealing with self-doubt is that I've, I'm a, I write music and try to produce it and compose it and everything like that. And there's like n nothing more right with self-doubt <laughs> than that for me. Because yeah. it's just like there's no, there's no real objective measure of that. Yeah. You just kind of have to be like, is this good? Does this suck? You know? <laughs> I love that type of stuff. I think it's like yeah. a lot of people, especially in this type of work, where there's like such long like horizons, even like within your smaller cycles, it's like it's a cohort that moves forward and like there's all sorts of payoffs, I'm sure, along the way. That's helpful. It's like playing a sport or practicing music it's like the failure is so immediate mm -hmm. like you hear it you know it right away like I, there's something like just satisfying about oh, getting yeah. that immediate sort yeah. of like feedback and you're like there's no hiding that like that did not go well it's yeah. terrible i airballed that shot whatever it is like i don't know just my own answer sometimes is like i love getting that like i mean it's like you need to practice this more. This is not. This is not working out. Like you know it right away. I sometimes do have it where I work on something. I get really excited by like one little riff that I write, yeah. and then I like try to make it into a song for like a week. <laughs> and I, after a week, I'm just like, this sucks. Like I just, I'll I'll keep the riff in the back burner, but like <laughs> toss this whole thing and never return to it. <laughs> but it is nice now. Yeah. yeah. Well, this conversation leads well into the next question. It's like, what's the lasting lesson you learned from a failure? You guys obviously have not failed very much. No, I failed so much that we're <laughs> <laughs> parsing through. Them, yeah. I think for for me, one of them is just like it's probably not the end of the world. Like, don't panic. I think like don't panic is some advice that you know I just try to give myself every day. But also like I think it applies to a lot of stuff. Yeah. You know, don't make it the end of the world. You don't need a bunker in New Zealand. <laughs> yeah, I mean a lot of the times for us, it's like you got to really practice what you preach. Because 
we have, you know, ideals of, you know, consensus building, collaboration, all sorts of things. And, you know, sometimes in the moment you need to make some, you know, quick split decisions. And for us, when you have a big organization and there's a lot of people that, you know, you're telling you, this is a you know collaborative effort and yet you're making these types of decisions and teaching people how to do this types of thing. And you blatantly like fuck that up. Like you feel really, really shitty about that. And you have to check yourself when, you know, there's that instinct like, Oh, you know, I can do this because I've done this all the time. But like there are a lot of other people in this room that, you know, we don't necessarily in this organization that maybe not are not in this room that we need to consult before we're doing these things. So we fucked up a lot with that recently (laughs) in a major way. And it's still something that like, you know, the more that we, you know, try to do, we're going to have to, you know, continue to return to that over and over and over again. Yeah. I think it it gets back to that idea of like bad feelings aren't, don't make you a bad person. And it's not bad to feel Mm -hmm. negative emotion. Like you should feel bad, you know, but you don't need to hate yourself. Right. You know? And so I think that's one of the big things I've learned. It's like, I felt really bad when we, you know, we messed something up with our team before we just, mm-hmm. which we sort of made a decision that should have involved more people and people were really hurt by it. Yeah. And you know, you feel it, but then you also got to be able to tell yourself, this is one moment, you know, I've, I trust myself and them enough that we can get through this, yeah. you know, and, and, and move forward. But because if you just start hating yourself, then it's, you don't go anywhere. So Yeah, that's a great lesson. Uh, so the next two questions are opposites of each other. So let's ask them both at once. What's one thing that you found surprisingly difficult when starting Optimize and something that you found surprisingly easy when starting Optimize? That's a good question. <laughs> surprisingly difficult is just taking care of yourself. So like the first year or so, I was just drinking like, a ton of coffee and it was kind of working for me for a while. Like I was, you know, we were doing okay ostensibly, but then it just became so clear. Like I just can't do this. Like my, it's wrecking my body. (laughs) And, and, you know, it's one example, but so many things, like so many of the biggest challenges for optimize just manifest themselves in my health for me at least. And like just recognizing, like I need to be really careful about how I actually live and what I eat and when I sleep and, you know, just how I'm managing stress and everything like that. So I don't think I ever thought about that before. So that's surprisingly difficult. Yeah, something surprisingly difficult was how hard it is to get money from, you know, our university account into <laughs> students' pockets. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've spent an enormous amount of time trying to figure that out. Yeah. Um, and it would be surprisingly easy to write a check, but I can't do that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think that's, you know, that's one of the things. The surprisingly easy is just doing the work because it's very, you know, purpose driven. I never have felt like, you know, I'm doing work that's not important. And it's, a, you know, it's surprisingly easy to come to work when you're working with people who are really, really energetic and into what it is that they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. My surprisingly easy would actually be right along those same lines. It's surprisingly easy to have people work really well together when you give everybody full autonomy for their own decisions. I think that, you know, we came into it with sort of this personal philosophy that like, like I've just like anti-authoritarian since I was a kid. Like I could not, I always got 
in sort of fights with coaches and teachers. And I just like could not handle people telling me what to do if I didn't feel that they had a real justification for it. And so kind of coming into this, like one of my biggest guiding principles in life is just like any authority has to justify itself. If it can't do it, then it should be disbanded. And what that meant for us was like, even as the director, I can't tell anyone what to do ever. You know, I can ask, but I can't tell. And no one can tell each other what to do. And so even with like project assignments, it's like, we know this is the work that needs to get done. I've got some people in mind, but I can't actually tell anyone to do any of this work. Right. <laughs> you know, and just how amazingly easy it actually is just to treat people as equals and say, here's some of the work that I think we need to do. If you think that this should be changed, let's talk about it. But, you know, do the things that you love. Let's find a way to align that with what we're doing. But we always start every conversation from a position of what is it that you're really interested in that you want to do. And we now have an organization of like 50 organizing team members. And it flows along pretty nicely. I mean, it takes work, but it's not hard. Yeah. Trust people. And I think that that's, for me, one of the biggest insights that I'll carry forward from Optimize is that like authoritarian hierarchical organizational structures don't make work more effective at all. No. Uh, it's harder. It's much easier to just trust people and build that culture. And you feel a lot happier in it. Yeah, this is the one that trips everybody up, so I will <laughs> warn you now, is what's one song that captures you as a person? Was yours Fight the Power? <laughs> <laughs> we penciled it in. <laughs> what's the song that captures the middle person? That's a good question. Let's see. It's got to be a Vegas song, right? One of our own songs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> our band's called Vegas. Vegas yeah, on SoundCloud. <laughs> SoundCloud.com slash listen to Vegas. Um, <laughs> that's tough because it's always like, do you go with a classic? Do you go with one that like meant a lot to you at a time? Or do you go with one that you've been listening to a lot now? Right. That's why we love this question. Right? It's always heavy-handed. Like, mm. This question is like, but what's one song that I'm like, I don't know. It's yeah. possible. <laughs> For me, so I'm a bass player. So if you get a good groove going, that's, you know, what I'm, what I'm for. And most recently, my band and I performed Earth, Wind & Fire's September. Love that song. Yeah. It's just like really positive, groovy. It's hard to sort of, whenever you're like listening to that song, be like in a down mood. And it's just like you, you can like feel how kind and like nice the people are just by listening to it who are making that music. And so I feel like I try to live out that sort of uh, vibe all the time. That's a great. It's like one of those things that makes this question interesting because some people will be like real deep into lyrically, like, does this describe my life? Or some people will go with a vibe, just the way it sounds or makes them feel. So, yeah, the lyrics in that song really pretty meaningless. So. <laughs> right. Right. Most of them aren't even words. Yeah. And I'm not a lyrics guy. Yeah. I'm like a group guy. Yeah. For some reason, the things that come to my head are like the weirdest things. Like, <laughs> not songs that I listen to at all. <laughs> you, can change your, you can change your answer a year from now. But, so there's a song that is within the movie Ice Age. Great movie. <laughs> One of my favorite animated movies of all time. We know what song or what movie describes it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, a lot of people said that I'm like the sloth. <laughs> <laughs> That was like my former pre-optimized persona. I feel like I've changed a little bit. But I would say you're the squirrel. <laughs> That's this is really going in. But now we need to yeah. ask the movie. That, in that like a little pre-movie before the movie, the squirrel it's like battering away at the nut and then it drops it and has to chase it. <laughs> That's me. If, if we're being honest. Um, uh, but no, there's this song "Send Me on My Way." I don't even know who sings it. it goes like bottom bum. 
And I don't know any of the words. I just think that it's funny that the words sound like totally different words. So like whenever I would play it on guitar, it just feels like this really like goofy. As soon as you start playing it, it's like, you know, you're not serious. Like right. nobody's playing on songs. Like, and the lyrics are like, it's like, there's a lyric that says like, that's what they say about the young. But it sounds like Mamma say Mamma Yeah, I was gonna say, I was like, I don't know. I know the song. I was like, I don't know any lyrics that they send me on the way or whatever. And it's just like, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. We'll go with it. You guys will basically pick groove songs, though. So that's yeah. Kind of, like, kind of interesting, right? <laughs> All right. So I love those those, uh, those picks. And I totally love that, that, that question. You don't know what you're going to get. But uh, the next question for you is from Joe Malcone of Nutshell. Cahoots, oh. Lion Pig. Is this a question specifically for us? Like, you're uh, talking to us, or is this sort of a general question? For yeah, you? so we allow every guest to ask the next guest, whomever they may be, a question. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, don't, I, don't know if he, I don't know if he knew or not, but I sometimes know, I know, sometimes I just, like, I want this question. <laughs> so this is the question for you. Well, then we'll give some, I'll say the question and I'll give some context. Okay. <laughs> the question is, what is your anxiety dream? Now the question, <laughs> um, yeah. So, like, basically, is that what reoccurring dream that you have that, that reminds you, like, I'm in a stressful or anxious like state of mind? The one that happens to me a lot it happens in slightly different settings, but the general theme is that I'm in some situation and then my muscles stop working and I just sort of like droop down and I like I'm like unable like gravity gets heavier or something, but just for me, everyone else is fine and I'm sort of like trying to move. And it's just like, even my eyelids are like kind of going down <laughs> and, and I, like people think I'm drunk and I'm like, I'm not drunk. I'm just, and it's just like, like, I'm just like falling, like I'm melting and I just melt. And I just do that for a while. And I like, and then sometimes it's in a situation where I like really shouldn't be melting. Like, I'm not just like in a couch chilling. I'm like running at something or like, I'm like in like an active situation. And all of a sudden I'm just kind of like. <laughs> Just like the weight of gravity is too much, and like my everything gets really flimsy. It sucks, man. <laughs> I know, like I love like this is a question that I have like the worst ever. I think both of us like you must really remember our dreams. So I don't really have one. I'm sure they are happening in my subconscious. But anyway, JP, do you? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a couple of different go-to responses. I would say. You know, my recurring dream as a youth was certainly the, uh, you know, massive tsunamis, rising waters, floods, and, you know, coincidentally, I'm an environmental sort of... <laughs> you, you really dreamt about that? Oh, yeah. All the fucking time. Oh, man. It was not great. But don't have that dream as much anymore. Um, I can just, you know... Turn just turn on, on the news. news like, every other week and <laughs> don't even have to dream. Some new flood. Uh, yeah, not good. But, you know, the sort of, like... You know, everything, you know, crashing down, exploding, burning uh, within the organization. That dream sometimes happens, usually before workshop one. I used to have, so on the other side of things, the dream that you think is going to be terrible, but then actually turns out great. When I was younger, I don't have this anymore. Now I have the melting dream. So I'm able to say something about my progression of anxiety or something. But I used to have a dream where I would be in some vehicle moving really fast. Oftentimes just like an open air vehicle. And I would go off some ramp just over like a vast expanse. <laughs> and there would be like a target that I'm supposed to land on super far away that I, in the dream, I'm thinking like, this is like the laws of physics mean that I'm going to die as soon as I hit it. <laughs> like, I just like, it's not 
physically possible. But then I'm in the air and I'm kind of enjoying at least, well, at least I'm in the air, kind of getting that feeling of like being flying through the air. And then I land it. <laughs> stick the land. Stick, stick the land. The land <laughs> and I'm fine. That happened. I had that dream all the time in high school, which I think reflected my sense that like, I never know what I'm doing, but it seems to turn out okay. But now I guess I have more of a, I'd like to be able to move, but I can't feeling. I don't know if that's fun. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And this, well, I add these to Joe. Yeah, immediately. I want to. I want to be honest here. Like, I I had very low hope for this question. Like, I don't know who in the hell is going to be able to respond to this because purely of our experiences. Yeah. But man, you guys did stick the landing. <laughs> yeah. we, we floated this one out there like this is an absurd. Well, did Joe tell you what his was? Yeah. Yeah. You have to listen to the podcast to find out. Oh, he's, because I don't remember all. He the talked. He talked you. about it. Yeah, yeah. Listen, that's, yeah, where it came yeah. from. Yeah. Do so, we have to ask a question now? Yeah, yeah. That's, the, that's the part should, now. So we'll do that the, the animated, uh, the animated movie that describes your life story arc? Or is that too much mm-hmm. of a similar sort of related question to the song? Let's ponder for a second. That could work. That could be good. You, get, you get two, actually, because you guys are both. Oh, we both get one. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that could be one if you want it to be. Ooh, we could go with. Who is the greatest Jeff of all time? And then the worst Jeff the worst of Jeff. all time. Because there's a lot of good ones and there's a lot of bad ones. Also, one of our one of our friends, the founder of Optimize Wayne. We didn't even talk about that, but Optimize Wayne is amazing. It's a uh, people who learned from what we did and started something at Wayne State. Oh, awesome! I didn't even know that that happened. That's, yeah, that's they're, really they're cool. three years in now. That and uh, the first year they had like five thousand dollars and like ten projects, and the second year they had fifty thousand dollars and like cool. 30 or 40 projects. And then this year they there's $75,000 and like 60 projects. It's it awesome. Is that another Jeff? No Jeff, but for her theory, the founder there is that for every good Jeff, there must be a bad Jeff. <laughs> so this is Jeff equilibrium in the world. Yeah. And she said, you know, now that you've got, this was when she came up with this, it was when Jeff Sessions was the, was, you know, still in his position. And she's like, you know, you got Sessions and Bezos out there. Like you and JP got a lot of work to do. <laughs> So for every for every good Jeff is a bad Jefferson. Yeah, so the bad Jeffs have been pulling a lot of weight lately. Um, you guys have a lot of weight on your shoulders. Yeah. So. Okay, <laughs> questions. Do people ask like serious questions or they ask They ask like, all sorts of they weird things. They run the gamut. You can't yeah. you can't mess this up. Yep. A friend of ours for the question, uh um one song, he's like, I don't listen to music. It's like, is that weird? We're like, yeah, he's like my question for, for the next guest is, is it weird to don't listen to music? <laughs> they have to answer. Yep. What don't have yeah. to. I, mean, I don't know. We can't really like do anything to them, but so far so good. It's your most embarrassing romantic experience. <laughs> That's such a good question. That's so good. People are going to be like, pass. I, I will gladly ask the next person. Okay, okay, let's do it. Oh, God. That's so much better than the other ones. Yeah. If, if the next guest is who we hope it is going to be, this would be a really great yeah. one. <laughs> That's actually yeah. We can't announce yet. Yeah, we haven't officially booked it, but yeah. Okay, nice. so so the good Jeff, that. bad Jeff question, and most of embarrassing romantic experience. Yeah, that <laughs> we're going with. Yeah. I like the Jeff one because you could be like, just theoretically, do you believe in this good Jeff, bad Jeff scenario? <laughs> yeah. I go a lot of ways with that. The whole world is is balancing itself on Jeff's. Yeah, you guys have made it through. <laughs> well, the whole theory was what, like it was just balanced on turtles or something. <laughs> <laughs> just turtles all the way down. The very like Rick and Morty yeah. as a <laughs> so, Congratulations, you guys have made it through a slow burn, nice and fine. Stuck, stuck the landing. 
So your reward is that fully you roasted. <laughs> uh, your reward is you each get to plug whatever you want for the next thirty seconds or however long you guys want to take. Ah, well, so we already plugged Vegas, so we should yeah replug. We won't count it towards your thirty seconds. We <laughs> don't enforce it anyway. I'll say optimizes raising money. <laughs> so if you're interested, if what we've been talking about today sounds cool, we sound like good Jeffs to you. Um, <laughs> Go to optimizemi.org slash give or send me an email and I can go give my email, I guess. Yeah. J-P-S-O-R-E-N-S at umish.edu. Send me a note and just say, hey, I like what you're doing. Even if you don't want to give money, you just want to talk. I won't expect anybody to be giving money, but if you do want to give money, we're raising money. <laughs> I think that's good. And we'll make sure it's yeah. in the show notes so we can do it easily. <laughs> JP, anything to add? Not really, no. I already plugged Vegas. And uh, <laughs> I'd say, you know, if he doesn't respond to your email, which, you know, he's not, not sometimes. <laughs> you can email me, J-P-I-T-U-C-H. I don't know why I ask people to email me. I hate email. I don't want to give my phone number because, you know, I don't know, that feels a little invasive. Just, just selfishly, before we wrap up, I think something really cool that could happen is like you have this Wayne offshoot. Like if, if I, I imagine you guys might be interested in like someone at a school somewhere, maybe thinking about doing something like this. That, yeah. that would be my own selfishly cool thing for the podcast, maybe accomplishing. But yes, yeah. I've actually done it and been through a lot. And uh, it's a really cool program. So, unfortunately, my mom is not in college, so she's not. <laughs> <laughs> so my, my Again, your mom. I'm just gonna tweet this out and hope someone else's yeah. mom listens to it. That's Lisa would probably want us to recruit some mentors because yeah. I bet. Uh, yes. Yeah, oh I bet, yeah. I bet that would be a really good. Uh, you know. Yeah, I don't know why I started with money. Nobody's gonna give us money from this, but um, <laughs> if you, well, you gotta do it. You know, I gotta yeah, at least yeah. let you know that we're doing it. Um, yeah. No, if you're interested. Um, so both Matt and Hein have been mentors to optimize and have uh, hopefully had a good time, you know, so yeah, far yeah, doing yeah, it. It's awesome. And uh, we're always looking for people who are interested in spending a little bit of their time working with students who are working on really cool stuff, just sharing your own experiences, your perspectives, maybe introducing them to people who you think could be helpful. And yeah, you know, hanging out with college students, get some, some energy, learn what... Feel young again. What the kids these days are doing right now. <laughs> so... Yeah, no, we would, we would really love to hear from you. Um, seriously. Don't expect anybody to give us money from this, but if you want to be a mentor, we'd love to talk with you. Awesome. Well, thank you both for being on the show. We had a great time. Hopefully you guys had a good time as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So. I, yeah. Look hopefully. forward to part two, which is just about like sort of sussing out this Jeff theory. I want yeah. To yeah. I really do want to be great depth into it. I think we should start a podcast. Good Jeff. Bad Jeff. <laughs> Honestly. Yeah. yeah. And just talk about the Jeffs of the world. So. Yeah. We're, we'll plug that even though it doesn't exist and made yeah. out ever, but I'm a hundred percent. clearly. Our friend Pete Baker, uh, it's on a podcast for a uh, duo and they do one for like, they talk about hacker movies. There's like five. Yes, nice. <laughs> so they just funny. talk about hacker movies and how shitty or good they are. <laughs> it's amazing. So, right, thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you. Thank yeah, you for uh, inviting us. It was a good time. Of course, thanks. Thanks for joining us. And that's our episode, everybody. If you had a blast like we did. Make sure to subscribe to the show. You're listening to it already. You might as well. It's available on Apple, Spotify, and everywhere else. 
And hey, make sure to share all the love with the makers and breakers out there in your life. And thanks for listening and keep your life on brand. Life on Brand is a Hug Finch production. Make sure to check us out at hugfinch.com for all your branding needs. That website again is hugfinch.com.